0: Hi there, it's Caroline Foran from Owning It, the Anxiety podcast, and this is a Staycast from Acast. Please, please, please do follow the government's advice right now, which is currently to stay at home where possible. The sooner we all get on board with these measures, the sooner we will be all together again. While you're staying at home, here's a recommendation for another great podcast for you to listen to. I think we need a bit of comic relief more than ever, so why not try the Two Johnnies podcast available on the Acast app or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Gibbo's Corner Brought to you by the Everything is Black and White podcast I'm Andrew Musgrove Today I'm joined by John Gibson Who has worked for the Chronicle for over 50 years Covering the highs and the lows of the magpie. Today we're going to talk about the colourful chairman and owners That have owned Newcastle over the last 50, 60 years or so Gibbo has worked with most of them during his time at the Chronicle And it is a Christmas special, so we hope you enjoy what's about to come. Hello, Gibbo. Um, Bringing the fans some Christmas joy, a trip down memory lane. Yeah. Um, Lots of colourful characters to talk about, from FA Cup winners to uh, chairmen who became managers in in many ways, and then to the less joyful times on Tyneside, but we'll get into it. Mm. Who are you going to start with today?
1: Well, it's a different situation. Now we have owners. Then we had the major shareholders because there wasn't owners way back in the day. And funny enough, we would be starting with Stan Seymour, who is the standout chairman, owner, Uh, in a century, in a quarter of Newcastle United history, because he came in and was the guy that ran the club when Newcastle won the cup three times in five years and were the outstanding cup side in the whole of the country. Um, And he had famously huge boardroom rows with William McKeag in the early 50s, where they clashed repeatedly, very colourful, very different people. I mean, Stan Seymour was the Cloth-cap working man that was very astute. William McKeague was the intellect, the wit, the Winston Churchill-type leader, very different people. Um, the background was that Seymour had been Newcastle wing- winger when they won the Cup in 1924, the FA Cup and the Championship in 1927. Uh, he departed Newcastle United as a player in 1929, inevitably under a black cloud uh, he had there was harsh words on both sides with the club and himself he had completed 9 years he thought he was deliberately being got rid of because 10 years automatically give him a testimonial. And when you think of wages in those days, which were an absolute pittance, you needed a testimonial to have any sort of security. He said he would never play football again and never did. He was personnel on Grotte at St. James's Park. Immediately he left. And funny enough, he came and worked for the Chronicle, Cover, and Gateshead, who were a football league side at that time. Uh, and that, and he opened a sports shop in town in, in Market Street. And that seemed to be the end of that. Apart from the fact that Newcastle got into dire consequences, were almost relegated from the second division in June 1938. And the phone call came in from the vice chairman, a guy called George Rutherford, uh, would Stan go up to the football ground? Stan thought, oh, I'm going to get the, the job back, supplying the gear to St. James's Park from a sports shop. Unbelievably, they asked him if he'd come back and manage the club. He said, no, he wouldn't. They said, well, in that case, will you join the board? Now, the situation in those days was that you had to have a minimum of five shares to be on the board, and Seymour had been refused shares in 1930 and 31 because the board had to agree to any transfer of shares. He was blocked, but all of a sudden these five shares were produced and he was able to join Newcastle United as a board member. In those days, again, you had to go to the FA as a former player to see if they would sanction it to happen, and it did happen. And so we had, for the first time, a guy who had won the FA Cup in the league with Newcastle United, being a standout player, who was now honorary manager and chairman of Newcastle United, which is a a unique hat-trick of events. And he turned out to be the shrewdest guy Newcastle United have had from the point of view of the team and the fans, not necessarily the counts and the etc., but to run the club the best they'd been because he recruited during the war and immediately afterwards all the great Newcastle United players, Jackie Milburn, Ernie Taylor, Harvey, Shaq, Brennan, Mitch, the Rob Lidos, the lot.
0: He give. Jack Melbourne, 19-year-old, yeah. uh, a trial. Yeah. I mean, did he ever speak about what he first saw in him? Because, you know, it must have been something special for him to, to see this young lad and said, you know what? He's going to come yeah, to Newcastle. Uh,
1: the ironic thing is, it, 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 in those days, they always started pre-season with a trial, which was the probables against the possibles. It was a public trial with with uh, the crowd in, the probables, which is the first team, against the possibles, which is the reserves. And um, it was the second trial. Jack played in it. Seymour was up there overseeing the whole thing. And at half time, he was told in the dressing room by the um, one of the trainers hey, Jack, you better get your finger out. If you don't do something in the second half, you won't be coming back. Uh, And incredibly, he scored six goals in 45 minutes in the second half of that trial against the first team, centre-half and goalkeeper. So, I mean, I think a blind man would have been able to see the talent then. not only a shrewd judge like Stan Seymour, who very quickly had Jack come in with his dad the following day and... and took his dad in took him up to the bar have a drink have a couple of drinks and jack's sitting there and he noticed he had a couple of fivers in his hand seymour behind his back fanning them in between his fingers which was a signing on fee he was going to give to jackie a pit lad up in ashington who had got the bus down with dad and in those days that was big big door um Alec was. His father was absolutely besotted with Seymour. Seymour knew what he was getting. He was a very shrewd judge of football flesh, um, and he proved it time and time again by trawling the northeast and getting players like Ernie Taylor, Jackie Milburn, for nothing, for nothing from the northeast. Went up to Scotland, Bobby Mitch and Frank Brennan for peanuts. The Robledos, who from Barnsley, Len Shack, who came and went very quickly, but made a record on his debut for Newcastle, scoring six goals on his debut against Newport County, who a beat by 13-0. Um, so Seymour won the club magnificently. He was flamboyant. He got, for example, Newcastle had their own carriage, their own train, uh, which was stuck on the end of a train for away games. They had their own chef in there. Uh, as the players got onto the onto the coach to go away for away games. They were each given 20 fags, a packet of 20 fags. Can you believe that these days? Encouraged to smoke. Um, And nine of the... Jackie Milburn used to keep in with the two non-smokers so he could get their packets himself. And Nine of that side that won the Cup in 51 were smokers and smoked in the dressing room at half-time. Nine of the 11 led up at half-time at Wembley when they won the FA Cup. These days would be absolutely unheard of. But Seymour was a man-manager... And he knew how to handle people, and he had a wonderful eye for town. And of course, uh, he was there for, Seymour was there for all three cup finals, although by 55, they'd actually experimented by appointing a manager. Seymour was still the overlord of the whole thing, but they'd appointed Dougal Livingstone, who would come from managing abroad with a lot of airy-fairy ideas, and... and was resented by a lot of the senior players for example jackie milburn often told me a story how he how livingstone put a chalk mark on the inside of bobby mitchell's boots Bobby Mitchell, one of the greatest wingers we've ever seen, a real Bobby Dazzler, as he was called, uh, to tell him how to side-foot the ball. And this guy was in Stanley Matthews' uh, class, and obviously he was well-resented. When the team was produced for the 55 Cup final and submitted to the board, Jackie Milburn unbelievably wasn't in the starting 11. And, of course, there was no subs in those days. Seymour took one look at the, at the sheet that he'd been given, and threw it in the waste paper basket, called Livingstone in and said, you're joking, we're not going to start with Milburn, Milburn's in the team. Um, And of course, the team was reshuffled completely. Milburn scored within 45 seconds, you talk about Seymour being vindicated and what he did, 45 seconds, which until recently stayed as... The quickest goal ever in a Wembley Cup final, and of course Livingstone's days were numbered, and he got the sack. Um, but he was he was disliked by the senior players, the the Mitchells. And funny enough, Harvey, who had captained the side in the in fifty one and fifty two, was a coach then, and he acted as the peacemaker between the senior players and Livingstone. But the man in charge was still San Seymour, Though, by now, we were getting into open warfare, warfare with William McKeague, which was being
0: done in public. Uh, I mean, obviously, Seymour became the first person to win an FA Cup with the same team as yes. player and manager. I mean, he yes. must have been a very proud man at that moment.
1: Oh, with, without a shadow of doubt. And and he was a man who was totally Newcastle United. He'd been a very different guy. He he, he was born in County Down. But he made his name playing football in Scotland, come back here, and he was totally a Geordie. He knew what the Geordie people wanted. He knew the flamboyance, and he had an eye for talent. And all that was combined in, in one guy. Um, now, William McKeague could see the rough edges in his stance, And um, William McKeague was a, a, a terrific guy to listen to a raconteur he was uh um, he spoke like churchill he wore monocle uh, etc etc they clashed repeatedly The things everybody looked forward to, especially the hacks and even the fans, was the annual meeting of Newcastle United, which was often in the county hotel, just across from the central station. Seymour and McKeague would clash openly at the annual meeting on the policies of Newcastle United. And shortly after Newcastle had won the Cup three times in five years, McKeague got a new manager appointed, an actual manager, and that was Charlie Mitten, who was his Colourful as a kaleidoscope, he'd been a a great player with Manchester United, but he was he was an, a, a total eccentric. He was a, a big gambler. He loved the dogs and he loved the horse races. He got a blower put in the manager's uh, room at St James's Park, so he had a direct line to the bookies. And uh, he famously, it's a famous tale, but it's absolutely true. He came in one day. He walked into the treatment room and. Len White, the famous centre forward, was on the treatment table getting some heat for an injury and he said to Alec Mutch, who was the physio, hey, get Whitey off off the table. And he had a ground on a lead, the lead uh, mitten and it was his ground who was running that night at Bruff Park and he wanted some heat treatment on its back leg before it ran at the night time and he actually threw Len White off the treatment table so his his dog could get the heat treatment. He was absolutely crackers Um and total extrovert, he produced a, the three greatest inside forwards probably one goal Newcastle United ever had, all Church, White and Eastham, Incredible. We scored 80 goals and let in over 100 and were relegated. And um, Seymour was obviously seething during all this because Mitten was a McKeague man and also Seymour could see what, yeah, Minton was doing wrong and of course uh, McKeague went away to America he did a lot of lecture tours. he did a lot of business over there and the moment he was away in America Seymour negotiated with the rest of the board to get Minton the sack and by the time McKeague came back Minton was yesterday's news and um, Newcastle went on from there but uh, we've got to look back on Stan Seymour as somebody precious and somebody quite unique because he proved that a player could not only manage but could also run a boardroom and be a success. And Newcastle's last successes have all been with Seymour. The last time they won the the championship, Seymour was the outside left, producing the goals for Hughie Gallagher. And the last time we won a domestic cup, Seymour was in charge of the whole club.
0: Of course, when he, cause he became manager again, didn't he, in the late fifties, and it didn't quite go to plan. That at hobble run of form Um, do you think that was the right decision for Seymour because you you said that Seymour could see where things were going wrong so he was kind of likely to always step in wasn't he and try and save the day do you think that tarnished his achievements or do you think it was just a a little blip in in otherwise I
1: I don't think it tarnished his achievements it can always happen and always does happen and there's always a time when he should step back and not come forward but for example I don't think that um, Brian Clough's uh, reputation at Nottingham Forest was at all tarnished by his last season when I think he actually took them down um, because he did far too much good before that. Whether Laurie he was tarnished by what happened at Sunderland when they were relegated, certainly it didn't tarnish his reputation at Southampton where he was seen as an absolute god. I, I think Seymour will always stand in Newcastle United's history as somebody quite unique. Because you won't get that again. You won't get a player who wins the FA Cup as a player, who wins the league as a player, and then becomes manager and chairman of Newcastle United, winning the cup three times in five years.
0: I suppose in many ways, given the fact that he had won the league, he'd won the FA Cup as a player, um, and then into the 50s, he had this kind of maybe untouchable reputation, would you say?
1: I think I think he had, but the, the, great, the great thing is that However, it, that got him going. He was the right man in, and he was the working class man. And I mean that as a compliment. Um, the, the ordinary rank and file public on the terrace could identify with him incredibly. I mean, he was a tough guy, don't get us wrong. I mean, Frank Brennan, who played in the first couple of cup wins, opened a sports shop um, while at Newcastle United and Stan Seymour took great to that because he had a sports shop himself and he threw him out the club and sent him from being Newcastle united center half who had just won the fa cup into non-league football at north shields and there was huge meetings at the city hall in newcastle fans in an uprising at what had happened to brennan but that was the sort of power the board in those days had and Seymour was quite capable of that as well if he was crossed you were dead and Frank Brennan knows that only too well Um so ruthless but of course you can argue the other way that any successful man to a certain extent is ruthless on occasion he was certainly ruthless with Frank and Frank didn't deserve that but overall Stan Seymour has a special place in Newcastle United history that'll take some equaling never mind bettering.
0: And Jackie Milburn was quoted as saying that Newcastle are indebted to, to Seymour.
1: Without a shadow of doubt. Without a shadow of doubt. Everybody that played in that 50s Cup side saw Stan Seymour as their father figure. The man that made it all happen. And the man that... Protected them. Ironically, the only thing that went wrong was Frank actually challenged them. Uh, and you didn't do that with Seymour. But um, otherwise, he protected you. And he looked after you. And of course, we got the situation where he was behind um, Joe Harvey becoming the Newcastle United manager. And we know the success that became. And of course, both William McKeg and Stan Seymour saw their sons both become... Chairman of Newcastle United. Stan Seymour Jr. was chairman of Newcastle United when Kevin Keegan uh, arrived, first arrived as a player. And, of course, Gordon McKeague, who was William McKeague's son, was chairman of Newcastle um, before John Hall came and took over and was a member of the board during the next man, we're
0: probably talking about, which is Lord Westwood. Can you just explain for our listeners kind of how the battle between McKeague and Seymour... Ended.
1: Yeah, um yes. I mean, it it, it never... Re- it really, with hindsight, came to an end, I guess, through the fact that McKeague needed Mitten to be a success, having appointed him after all the success we had with Seymour and the copiers. Mitten was a man who was taking Newcastle towards relegation and towards ridicule in some ways with some of the decisions that were made and so that he was never going to be able to recover from that Um, in those days of course all shares went from father to son they were automatically passed on so families continued to reign afterwards and that happened with the Seymour family and the McKeague family the shares were passed on so after you got Stan Senior and William you suddenly got Stan Junior and Gordon. So they the, the whole thing continued from generation to
0: generation. And what was what were the what were the juniors relationship like? Was that any better between the two?
1: Yes, yes. It, it, there wasn't the open hostility there'd be been between the two dads without a shadow of a doubt. There was still uh, in the image of the dads, Stansey Jr. was very much a, a, a Stansey Sr. type of person, and Gordon was quite a distinguished chap who was a solicitor and was in the local uh, lawn tennis club, etc., etc. So the image in the same thing went on. Neither enjoyed perhaps a success. Certainly not Stan Jr., although he'll take great credit, and rightly so, for being around with uh, Arthur Cox in the bringing of Kevin Keegan, to play to Newcastle. Yeah.
0: When, just before you, you described um, kind of the open hostility between the two senior yeah. members there, I mean, just paint an image for, for our listeners. Was it literally, was it, you know... Was it fisticuffs? Was it just harsh words? Was it banging on tables? I mean, what was...
1: Oh, I mean, they were oil and water as people and they openly offended one another um, with just the manner, for a start. Uh, was found very offensive. um, And it was open warfare. It was irritation. It never got quite to fisticuffs because I think uh, certainly Mr McKee would be far too astute a man to allow that to happen. But... um, it got very darn close and the words were hugely heated and um, everybody on the board was more or less uh, expected to take one side or the other. Um, In a way, it almost carved Newcastle to bits, um, but yet it didn't, because out of all of this turmoil came all the success of of the early 50s. So um, amazingly, the club seemed to thrive on... The confrontation um, instead of just having a docile boat.
0: Was there any common ground? I suppose one piece of common ground would be that the both wanted Newcastle to be successful, but was it a case that one would say, well, actually, if you make that decision and you fail, like McKeek did with the appointment of the manager, Seymour, would we kind of take that hit on the club? Or?
1: Oh, I, I, without a shadow of a doubt, there were, everybody played angles and everybody wanted. Each wanted to put the other one down and put the other one in the place because um, both were strong-willed people and with great ability. Stan was so essentially streetwise and William McKeague um, had an absolute terrific record both in the army during the two wars and uh, in business and he was the alderman, um, he was an alderman, he was the Lord Mayor of Newcastle, as I say he was a Churchillian type figure Uh, there were oil and water and they were both going to fight the corner and no one was going to... Back down. I always got the
0: feeling that Streetwise would win, and often as not, Streetwise did win. Most certainly. And just finally, one last word on on Seymour. Well known for his belief that you know you have a manager in place, but they don't make the decisions. It was mm. it, it, the, the directors. Yeah. Could you see that working today? No, um, I don't
1: think it works. Today, in the same way. I think Stan Simo, really, although he was chairman of the club, that's the way he got into the club. He realised that um, when he was first invited back, will you come and be manager? Uh, and he said no, uh, way back at the start, that a manager is sackable. Once he was on the board, he wasn't sackable. Um, and and therefore he wanted to be on the board. But I think he honestly saw himself as honorary manager more than he saw himself as chairman of the club. Uh, he saw himself as the ultimate uh, power, and he was never going to release that, even when a manager was appointed, Dougal Livingstone. When he was given the, the team sheet to show the team we were playing in the 55 Cup final, he didn't bite his lip and think, oh dear me, he hasn't picked Jackie, isn't that awful? He threw it in the waste paper basket and said Jackie plays and Livingstone was the man out. So he was the ultimate power and whether you could have that power from the boardroom today, yes, you can sack people, but I don't think you can interfere in the manager in the manager's decisions the way Stan interfered in Livingston's decision in the 55
0: Cup final no the game has moved on absolutely on to the next owner chairman then Gabor. Lord
1: Westwood Lord Westwood uh, as colorful a figure again in a very very different way 18 years um at Newcastle United on the board of Newcastle United um one of the great characters he um was chairman Drew when Newcastle won the European First Cup when they made the two Wembley cup appearances in the FA Cup of 74 and the League Cup of 76 um and he rose to be a power in the whole country by becoming president of the Football League um, his background was interesting he was a, he started off as a railway clerk he became a company secretary and then director of a host of companies including hornby railways which was a big big company in those days and um, a flamboyant guy a, a total wit a raconteur and after dinner speaker who was in great demand in america because once you were you're you a lord when, uh, when you have white snowy white hair a patch over your left eye, um, which was a result of a car crash in which he left, lost his eyesight and wore a patch. He was so distinguished looking that he'd he, he become um, a massive figure throughout the whole of the country. And um, he ran Newcastle and was the front man of Newcastle and held together the different factions of the board very, very well. Um, um, I, w- I won't suggest it was all sweetness and light but there wasn't more. There was the open warfare there'd been of Seymour uh, and McKeague um, he was called Bill, Bill Westwood uh, Lord Westwood he, is what he'd become um, Hi, it's Finn Dwar from the Irish History Podcast and this is a staycast from ACAST Please, please, please follow the government's advice right now which is currently to stay at home where possible. While you're staying at home, I would recommend another great show that's worth checking out. It's Unexplained by Richard McLean Smith. It's a beautifully produced and gripping show that looks at unusual and sometimes unnerving occurrences from the past and present. It's perfect escapism. Check out Unexplained on the ACAST app or wherever you get podcasts. (music) And he had great flamboyance. Um, the interesting thing was that, yes, there, there was, despite the fact that we won the European First Cup and we got to two Wembley finals, there was inevitably, as always is with Newcastle, periods where there was open warfare with within the club itself, particularly after 1976, after Joe had left and and Lee had taken Munger, and then Lee took to his toes and disappeared over the horizon to join Everton. That it, it was announced on a match day at St James's Park, uh, Newcastle were riding about fifth top in the league at the time. Uh, a total shock, very bad timing because Lee had been uh, allowed to do what he wanted to do, and what he wanted to do was get rid of Terry Ibbett who made the goals for Supermac and then get rid of Supermac because he hated personalities. He wanted one for all and all for one. He didn't didn't want the stars. He didn't want any stars. And he did exactly the same at Everton with Duncan McKenzie. He didn't want any stars. But if you decide to go down that route and you rid Newcastle United of the greatest midfield creator of goals, Terry Ebbett, and the greatest scorer of goals, Malcolm MacDonald. and then you take to your toes, it's sacrilege. If you do that, you have to stay and see the job through. But you to do that and then leave immediately
0: was absolutely horrendous. So just on that match day then, when that was announced, are you looking around thinking, goodness, what happens now?
1: Well, yes to a great extent i mean there was a certain not elation in in certain areas of the club because the club by then and the and certainly the dressing room by then was greatly split there was the 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 Gordon lee clique and the clique that had been the old school clique if you like if, if which super mac was part of and terry hibbert was part of and etc uh, etc cetera, et cetera. Um, and there was some that were very pleased to see lee go uh, others were absolutely decimated and wounded but you certainly wondered what on earth was going to happen and of course what happened was that the boardroom immediately got together the they lee clique and rallied round richard dennis who was lee's number two Uh, to make certain that he ran the club so the club continued in the same vein as it had been Um, and that worked player power swung into operation players appeared outside of uh, St James's Park to read a statement saying the worst for Richard Dennis to get the job, etc., etc. Can you imagine that today? You know, a player's standing outside of St James's Park demanding who got the, the the manager's job, and you got that in the board with Newcastle fifth top and all the players wanting, Lee, uh, wanting Dennis, put Dennis in for the rest of the season, and we managed to qualify. For Europe, because all all Richard Dennis did was make certain he didn't rock the boat and they, it continued for the few games left in the vein that they had been in. And very astutely, on the final day of the season, the players who were pro-Gordon Lee and therefore pro-Richard Dennis got um, Dennis on their shoulders when they were going round the ground applauding the fans for qualifying for Europe put him on the shoulders and carried him round the ground. And, of course, what did the board of directors do then? They haven't got an awful lot of choice but to go with Dennis' manager. And Dennis got the job, which infinitely he wasn't anywhere near qualified to do. Uh, people wondered what, whether he was a good enough coach, but what he certainly wasn't was a manager of the First Division Club, a Premier League Club today. He hadn't that experience or ability.
0: And could you see that kind of failure coming because obviously it did Yes
1: quite frankly it horrified me because I could see that failure coming and um, I had always objected to Gordon Lee uh, because I was an out and out Supermac man and um, you know when you when you complained about Supermac who was scoring 30 goals a season um, and in the way that Gordon Lee would privately to me and would openly and when you Quite happy to see him leave the club, and when you force out Terry Hibbard at the same time, I was in despair because they represented to me what was all good about the club, um, and with Dickie who was a Dicky Dennis, who was a lovely, lovely man, you felt here was a man out of his depth, being manipulated by the players, and would he be capable of standing up to the board of buying well, etc., etc. The answer was no, because after the first game of the following season, Newcastle were lost in Europe almost immediately. They beat Bohemians, who were the um, semi-pro side from the Republic of Ireland, but then lost. For the the
0: Junior nil-nil in the first leg, which was a huge shock.
1: Oh, I I mean, the whole thing, and then lost badly to Bastia, uh, next time round, and lost 10 First Division games on the trot. And and Dickie was hugely out of his depth and um, out of his depth on, on buying players. And it, the inevitable was going to happen, which is this guy was going to get the sack. And then we were in free fall, of course.
0: But, but then how did McKeague deal with that? Because this West- is this... Uh, so Westwood, sorry. Because this, um, for many, is... Kind of shown as his worst uh, time at Newcastle, his lowest point because yes. the year of seventy seven, you lose Lee, you then got Dennis, and it doesn't go up to plan. You then sack him. There's the talk of backstabbing, and mm. uh, well,
1: this was when everything spiraled out of uh, out of control at Newcastle United, because the players had forced Westwood and the board into giving Dennis the job. There's absolutely no question about that. And the board, realising that there would be an uprising both in the dressing room and amongst fans, if that didn't happen because the fans were reacting to the players, uh, did it. I'm certain that they felt this was a disastrous move. So it proved that then had a Adesakam, which brought a, another uprising amongst players who were players like the man that, is good, that they're comfortable with, the man that likes them, the man that isn't going to rock boats. And that's what happened with Newcastle United. And once he went, the players were open arms and the fans were obviously very disenchanted. And, of course, what the board went out and did, um, Westwood, was that they appointed Bill McGarry as the Newcastle United manager, to follow uh, Dennis. Now, the idea of Bill McGarry was that he was this absolute tyrant of a manager who was great. His job was to come in and smash player power, to, to get rid of the player power in the dressing room that had produced all this chaos after Lee had left. He did that very simply because he was ruthless. But you can take a sledgehammer and knock down a wall, but building the wall afterwards is the difficult part. And he couldn't build his side. Having got rid of all the player power, he couldn't build a side. And he went the same way um, as, as Dennis went uh, in the end. Um, and during this time, Westwood was really taking flak on all sides he was taking flak from the uh, dressing room he was taking flak from the terraces and he was taking flak from the press Um, and his reaction which is the reaction of of most chairmen is to try to smash the dressing room try to smash the press by banning them left right and centre and batten down the hatches. The wonderful thing is that when you do get banned, and I've been banned from everybody, from Westwood through to Ashley, um, when you do, it, the amazing thing is it doesn't seem to create long-term... It can create respect. I always remember when Lord Bill eventually left Newcastle United um, and, and he banned me during that, that period. He asked me to go up to his house in Gosworth and I went up to his house in Gosworth and he'd been president of um, the Football League, he'd been on the UEFA committee, etc., etc. and he had loads of unique books um, from his position with those two and he wished to give them to me to keep as a memento, etc., etc. I've still got those books at home now and we parted as friends with respect for each other, because however much we... If I'm one side of the fence looking after the interests of the fans, and he's the other side of the fence looking after the interests of the board, it doesn't mean you can't respect one another, and that respect remained. And I knew his son Gavin, who become a good friend, Gavin Westwood, who followed him as Lord Westwood, of course, um, and uh, yeah, uh, and so that happens. But you do go through turmoil. Uh, it's almost inevitable, but hopefully you come out the other side with great friendship. And it happened with another Newcastle director called Peter Malinger, who I'll be talking about later, in the John Hall era, where we became friends after the war was over.
0: Hmm. Um, just a word on Westwood. He had a bad time in the early 80s um, Newcastle were quite in financial Mm. trouble. He resigned from the board. So just tell our listeners about that.
1: Yeah, yeah. In 1981, it was interesting because he was the number one director, if you like, in the whole of England because he was the Football League president. He was not only chairman of Newcastle United, but he was the Football League president, which is the number one position for any director in any club in the whole of the country. Newcastle by 1981 were in dire straits financially and the bank asked each director to put up a £16,000 guarantee with the bank to help club finances. Now, the big difference there was they weren't immediately asked to put £16,000, which was a considerable amount of money in those days. It's 1981, not today. Weren't asked to put it in that day into the, the club, but... That that would guarantee it if the worst came to the worst. Um, now a lot of people would say if you've lived high on the hog as a Newcastle United director for an awful long time, etc., etc., backing a club to a tune of a few thousand quid is something that you should be prepared to do. At that time, however, Lord Bill had taken a financial hit uh, in the stock following the stock market collapse. When DCM, one of Europe's leading toy companies of which he was the chairman, uh, had suffered great financial uh, collapse and he refused to guarantee the money, which he saw as the future of his family personally, and he wasn't going to put it at risk. So he resigned from the board rather than put in. The 16,000
0: guarantee. Just, just how bad was it at that time? I mean, if you're a if Newcastle United fan, I mean, were you worried that your club could go under?
1: We, as fans, I don't think we were because it didn't happen as much in those days as it did later on. And it hadn't reached the stage of if we don't have a financial injection immediately, the club will go under. It was, we want that guarantee if we hit a bad this is the bank if we had a bad time in the near future at the moment you don't have to put anything in at all but we want your guarantee which will sustain the club in the meantime Um, now obviously lord bill decided that he wouldn't do that which went down like a lead balloon with newcastle united fans um, but was his total prerogative to do that but in refusing to do it he had to resign from the board now hereby come a dilemma because in resigning from the board he had to resign as the football league president because to be a football league president you had to be a director of a football club so the his resignation at Newcastle was fiddled if you like or delayed which is a better word so that his last action as a football league president would be to present the league cup at wembley after the final in the final that year was between liverpool and west ham so his final act it was that game was on the Saturday. his resignation from the board at newcastle night it was dated for the monday so he could go to Wembley on the Saturday and present the League Cup to the winners of Liverpool v West Ham. Uh, unfortunately for Lord Bill, the game ended 1-1 and the replay was the following week, by which time he wasn't the Football League president because he'd resigned from Newcastle United and so he couldn't present the Cup as the final gesture of his term at Newcastle United, which I think you know, delighted a few Newcastle United fans who felt... Uh, badly done to that the minute there was a whiff of having to give something back the club you left Um, as a bloke uh, he was controversial all the decisions didn't work but um, for an awful long while he was very very uh, influential at Newcastle and he was influential with his contacts his background was although he was Geordie based etc his background was Scottish and his cousin was a guy called Hal Stewart that ran Chronic Morton, the, the league club up in Scotland. And um, the club, which, funny enough, Stan Seymour made his name with as a player. And um, that link between Hal Stewart and Lord Westwood is how we come to sign Benny Arentoft, who played in the 1969 European First Cup side. Because uh, there was a, a Arentoft who was a, a Dane. Was playing for Greenwich Morton, Hal Stewart alerted Bill to what a good player he was and that we would go up and sign him. At that time, there was a ban on foreign players coming into the Football League, but we got round it because Wolf Taylor, who was the league vice president, uh, under under Westwood uh, discovered a loophole whereby through Benny Arantoff having played in Scotland for three years, married a Scottish lass although he's a foreign player that would qualify him as British and therefore he could sign for Newcastle so we got Benny Arantoff through the link of Hal Stewart the cousin of Lord Westwood um, and funny enough Gavin Westwood, who was Lord Bill's son, who I got to know very well and was another lively character and a, a, a guy I got on with super. Um, the amazing thing is, during all the chaos with Lord Westwood and the confrontations, and by the way, the first challenge to Newcastle United Board of Directors, which eventually ended with um, John Hall taking over the club, was Malcolm Dick standing up Against Lord Westwood and the board in those days to challenge him to smash the uh, cartel that was running Newcastle United. Malcolm was very brave to do that and very and took a massive hit in doing that. But during that period, Gavin actually voted with Newcastle United rebels against the board run by his dad. So that was quite an amazing stage of event. But, but. Malcolm Dix was the forerunner of the rebel that would stand, uh, the rebel with a cause that would stand against the Newcastle board and against Lord Bill. And he did that at a great personal cost, I might add, but later had the satisfaction of being part of the Magpie group that did bring about huge change and got Sir John Hall into power at Newcastle.
0: So, what happened after Westwood's re- resignation? Where did he go from there?
1: That was the end of Lord Bill, and, and Gavin never came on the board. Gavin Westwood. Um, we went through a period of, uh, we still had uh, Gordon McKay and um, George Forbes and, and various uh, members of the board. The same families were running Newcastle United because, as I say, uh, in those days there wasn't an owner; it was shares and the shares could only be transferred with the blessing of the current board for example if a a shareholder wanted to leave the shares to me and the board thought i was at all undesirable because i might challenge them they could block the shares coming to me so they went down from father to son to father to son so the same families the mackenzies the dixons uh, the Seymours, once stan had got his um, Stan C had got his shares, his five shares, in the forties, um, and that's the way it continued until it was smashed by Sir John Hall, having the financial clout and the willpower and a concerted effort which took two years of bloody war um, to overturn that, smash the families by being able to buy the shares, forcing the shares to be bought and changed the full history of Newcastle Knights forever.
0: And is that where we're heading on to next, Sir John Hall? heading
1: next, absolutely. And of course Sergeant
0: you, Hall. in many ways, played a big part in yes, the pie group. So you weren't only a journalist yep. um, reporting on it, but you were also kind of inside. Yes. And it, well, my first question is to you that, as a journalist whose job it is to write and report, did you ever have any dilemmas where you thought, this is a bit sensitive information. If I do this, it might impact oh, I mean, the next I, decision. Yeah, there had within be, the club.
1: I mean, there was great thought because um, it, that I had to think about before I actually did it. Um, John Hall was very shrewd. There was an uprising amongst uh, box holders at St James's Park against the the current uh, climate and they sort of encouraged John Hall, who at that time had built the Metro Centre, was a very influential businessman, would you be the catalyst to stand up for the fans and and try to get change at Newcastle. He realised, John Hall, that he couldn't do it on his own. He needed a public mouthpiece, which meant the support of a newspaper to do this. He realised that most newspapers would want to go along with the current situation because if you clash with the board then you can get banned you're not going to get information life's going to become very difficult he approached the chronicle to see if we would come aboard our editor if the chronicle very courageously said yes and wished me to be the the guy the collaborator and the guy that would go on to the magpie group and would do the hard-nosed stories now i knew immediately what I was taken on by doing that. Um, and I was approached unofficially by members of the current board who said, if you do this, John Gibson, when John Hall and the Magpie group fail, you will be banned for life from St. James's Park. Uh, to which, full of bravado, probably stupidly enough, I said, but when we win, perhaps you will be the people banned from St James's Park. But I had to think about it, and the big difference made was that I believed in the crusade John Hall was going to do, and with my Newcastle United supporters hat on, rather than reporters hat, I wanted to see if I could make help, in some small way, a significant change at Newcastle United, which I prayed would be for the better.
0: Just explain to our listeners the first time that you met Sir John Hall then?
1: Very, very early on I knew him as as the man that he was a big I mean you knew all the big businessmen in town who were football orientated and John Hall was very much part of that and I knew him as a very decisive man that would make decisions Uh, I saw him as a man with the courage to do it young enough at that time to do it because it was going to be a long and savage fight and I liked his vision, the vision of a man that had produced the Metro Centre at Newcastle, the first, you know, shopping mall in this country, there was anything like that. It produced a nighthood, for goodness sake, what he did. And his passion was very infectious. I had long lived in watching Newcastle totter from nothing to nothing to nothing, run by the same people just because... They happened to be born in the right place at the right time. Not necessarily being good businessmen, visionaries or whatever. We'd had that with Stan Seymour, but we'd had a lot of, of nonsense after that. And I just felt that if you didn't make an effort to try to change things at Newcastle United, then you would
0: regret it for the rest of your life. Did you, looking back, you said that um, the, the board said, look, if, if you fail, you're banned. Yeah. Do you look back in the- I mean, were you always fully confident that Sir John Hall was, was going was gonna to win or was it a bit of blind faith, like you say, you, you put your supporters on?
1: I, well, I think there was blind faith at that date. You didn't realise until you got into it what, what a huge, huge fight this is and, and how vicious it was going to be. When you think about it with hindsight, a multi, multi, multi-million pound company, forget that it's, it's football and our love and everything we love. It is the biggest of businesses and people don't sacrifice control of businesses that big, willingly and very easily. And so the infighting was going to be huge. And these were businessmen on the other side of the fence, as well as John Hall. They were going to do everything to hold on to power. And initially, everything was in their hands. They held all the shares, they held all the cards, they held everything. So it was a matter of keeping nerve and keeping on at it. And it took two years. And there were some horrendous moments Not two years. And there were some moments when we were faced with defeat, there was moments when we had to steady John and make certain he didn't lose as the figurehead, the will to continue the fight and there was, and the closer we inched towards winning the fight there was the absolute sudden dawning If it's all right to win the fight, but what if it goes all pear-shaped upon winning it and Newcastle become a disaster or get relegated or everything? Everything you've gone to achieve, you then don't achieve, and that will be remembered for all time. It was a massively huge undertaking, and I'm not certain that a newspaper has ever done that. In the past, and I'm not certain that a businessman has ever done it in the because this nowadays you've got to buy out one guy, like Ashley had to buy out John Hall, and somebody's got to buy out Mike Ashley. Then you had to go around a hundred um shareholders individually and persuade them to sell to you. Took two years.
0: Well, and um, we'll get on to them kind of vicious infame. I just want you to paint the picture then for the moment that the editor got the call, called you in to the office and said, look, this is the proposal, I imagine there was quite a bit of conversation.
1: Oh, there there was a huge amount of conversation because what we wanted to do, Alan Oliver was the chap that was covering Newcastle United on a daily basis at that time, and I was just executive sports editor, we wanted to keep the two jobs separate so Alan could continue to do Newcastle United on the day to day thing and I would front the big push in it. and I had to get assurances from my editor that when the going got tough because it was going to get tough and we did know that that he stood rock firm behind me and rock firm behind John Hall because we couldn't decide halfway through a campaign oh we think we're going to lose or we think this is too tough, we're now going to withdraw yeah in for the long haul win lose or draw and um, and and so there was a and there was a lot of moments during the thing when um there was accusations going backwards and forwards there was meeting it was quite ludicrous at times i, I mean i was used not just as the guy that was fronting the thing but while people like peter Ratcliffe and 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 john wharf and malcolm dicks and Alan Rooney were going out and talking to shareholders all over the country because they were scattered throughout the country. They didn't all live in the Northeast to try to get them to sell their shares to the magpie group. And I was also meeting members of the board and various other people discreetly behind the scenes meetings were taking place where I would be asked to talk in the kitchen so that could and the guy would turn on the taps and run the two taps so that if I was wired. What was being said couldn't be recorded on my wire because the water was running the top. It was ludicrous stuff, um, but yet it was very serious stuff. And that's when you realised how serious this whole business was and
0: what a lot of bloodletting there was during all this. So what do you think the moment was for Graham where he looked at it and thought, you know what, we need to do this for our readers, we need to do this for for, this, for the supporters, we need to do it for this for the city, because... When you actually hear you see it and what what occurred, oh, very brave.
1: I mean, it was it was enormous. We it made a, a big a, a big logo which was the old fashioned magpie that used to be the the um, um, the uh, mascot of Newcastle, United, with the words "Why are we waiting?" The huge words, and that was hammered in the paper every time we did a story, and we led page one on story after story. If if this. Um, and each one was was a hammer blow, and sometimes the stories were a, a, a tick to the board where they had blocked something successfully. And we also had to carry because we've got to remember we're a newspaper at the same time as a as crusaders. If if there's a story where the board says something, and we don't like it, we still carry the big story of what the board are saying. And I think when they biggest shareholder at Newcastle United, one of the Dixons, the biggest shareholder at Newcastle United, who was a board member but wasn't an active uh, person, uh, when he sold out to to John Hall, we realised that the cork had come out of the bottle and all of a sudden we weren't treading water and and trudging up a hill but we were ready to come over the top and and slide down the hill Uh, and and that was a a terrific feeling. Throughout it all John Hall, because there was some vicious fighting, always said, look what we must always do is leave the door open. If we're in a room and we're in fighting, leave the door open so our opponents can walk out of the door with dignity if they wish. We don't need to humiliate people. But there was times when there was despair and there was times when there was elation. But I think the greatest fear, you know, was when we actually won because you then woke up the next morning and thought, this has taken two years. The punters expect something now. What if it doesn't work?
0: Uh, so just explain to our listeners and some of the examples of the infighting.
1: Yeah, oh, I mean, there there, there was huge infighting. Um, there, there was... Um, as I say, there was there was meetings that took place uh, between that weren't supposed to take place. Uh, taps were run so that we couldn't record anything that was said. There would be a meeting where I would be asked to go and meet a member of the board, and the minute we met at a certain place, they would change or I would change the place and say, "Look, no, I want to move on to another." In case that place was bugged and 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 they heard what was being said Um there there was people that were used to come and verb, there was verbal threats at both sides about um, what would happen if the whole thing didn't work or if we didn't take the foot off the accelerator. It was really at times completely nasty. But yet when you look back on it, it's understandable. I mean, is is there a bigger business... In, in the city of Newcastle the Newcastle United. Well,
0: that was my next question because when Sir John Hall sold to Mike Ashley, he yes. thought he was doing the right thing. He thought he was selling to a, a billionaire who would put money into the club. Yes. So why then, when he took over, did those on the board not look forward and think, well, okay, we've taken the club as far as we can. You know, we've we've suffered relegation. We've suffered, you know, heartbreak. Why didn't they think Actually, you know what they're going to be. The, they're going to Sir John Hall the Mark Group are going to be the best um, option going forward.
1: They were so used to the power, uh, and by the way, the prestige of being of running Newcastle United within the city, etc., etc. I mean, socially, it was a passport to absolutely everywhere that you were the Newcastle United board. Um, and so they weren't going to give that out and also the shares had been passed down from family to family and they were expected and they were going to pass it on to their sons so they didn't want to relinquish anything and, and this idea of takeovers which today we all know this is going to happen every 10 years or whenever with every football club. They're, they're going to sell out and a new owner's going to come along. Then that never happened. You were owner for life. You were the, the shareholder, the major shareholder for life. It didn't happen and they didn't want to give up that power. Um, and they didn't want someone like John Hall coming in who would ruffle shit. Share- Ironically, when John Hall first launched his bid for the club he wanted to hand it over to the fans and he wanted the fans to buy enough shares where it would be fan based and fan run and it was it became obvious as we got nearer to winning that the fans weren't going to buy the shares in the greatest number needed for them to be run as a fan based consortium and therefore he had to take it over himself he was very looking to do that initially a lot of people now would think that he was looking to take over but he wanted to smash the way newcastle night was run but give it to the fans but to give it to the fans they had to buy up the shares which he had bought and would willingly have given to them at face value not at the price he had paid but there wasn't enough fans willing to buy the shares for them for it to be a fan based club. So he had to take over and, of course, did so. And we went on to have the entertainers, of course.
0: Uh, did you ever get taken aside by the managers during the battle? I um, mean, and, you know, and get to you, you distract, it's, it's distracting the team. Or was, was it kept separate what happened on the pitch did yeah, on the pitch off. What
1: happened on the pitch very, very separate. And um, although it was quite obvious and um, you know, during the period when Jim Smith uh, was manager, he knew the inevitability of what was coming along and he lived he knew he was working on on borrowed time. And then of course you had Ozzy dealers that followed that and famously got sacked at nine o'clock in the morning while uh, Kevin Keegan was at St James's Park waiting to be unveiled at 9.30. Um, So there was an inevitability about that and it was tough on somebody like Jim Smith because it was out of his control and was obviously going to change hugely once John had total control. I mean, he went in the boardroom with the old board to start with and when he appointed McKee, uh, when he appointed Keegan, sorry, uh, he had to fiddle it quite, and carefully because some of the old board was still on the board with him to make certain it didn't leak what he was doing until it was produced as a fait accompli. Um, but So, the you know, the, he had to go on a board with some of the adversaries to start with before he had
0: total control. Were there any dark moments during the two-year battle where you thought... This just doesn't look like it's going to happen.
1: Oh, without a shadow of doubt. I mean, quite a few times uh, we had it. And there was dark moments where other members of the magpie group would get together and have a meeting to then go through to Winyard to see Sir John um, and us reiterate to him we've got to give him total support here we've got to let him know that we're with him and that this will happen and that we've got to continue because as the figurehead he was taking all, all the flack and had he lost his bottle we would have been in big big trouble but there was a lot of people around they'd had an awful lot of bottle to make certain that if john ever wavered and a couple of times he wavered because a couple of times everybody wavered under the constant bombardment it was going on privately you were bound to do that um and so there were very weak moments and very down moments um but in the end it all came out into sunshine i only wish the sunshine had lasted longer because we came out into a situation where a huge chance was taken in pointing Kevin Keegan, who had no managerial experience whatsoever. Um, John Hall backed Keegan magnificently. Everybody remembers what a wonderful motivator Keegan was and what a wonderful buyer. He was like Stan Seymour. He recognised talent and bought wonderful, wonderful talent. But the, the talent in... KK's day cost money. It didn't in Seymour's day. And Hall, given that money, we beat the club record fee about once a month for a period at one time when we were going through Les Fernand and everybody else, all the way up to a world record fee for uh, Shearer, 15 million. So there was huge backing in the, in the transfer market, the sort that isn't happening for Rafa from Ashley today. And there's always if only moments, Andrew, you know, and when I when I look at, 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 at the battle of the two years, when I look at the wonderful period immediately afterwards when we had the entertainers, which went from the verge of the old third division to runners-up in the Premier League, almost simultaneously Sir John stepped down as chairman, remained owner, but took himself out the boardroom totally, around the same time as Kevin Keegan, took to his toes and left Newcastle United as manager. And I think without those two powerhouses, who often had great conflict because they were two powerful men with egos and they would clash. But without them two, I think Newcastle slowly ebbed away and we had, we didn't again. I just wonder what might have happened if John Hall had stayed in the boardroom and Kevin Keegan had stayed as manager. Uh, we could have had quite something, but Keegan took to his toes, and he was always volatile. no there was always a chance of that. John was persuaded that he'd done what he'd set out to do, and he, sh- he should hand over to his son Douglas, who then ran it with um uh Freddy shepherd uh, but he was the family suggested it was time for John to s- step back and smell the roses in his life and one didn't happen because of the other but it was almost simultaneously those two went and I think with it went a little bit of the hope we had for Newcastle
0: most certainly and that leads us on so Mike Ashley but just one final question on Sir John Hall just describe to our listeners uh, uh, the moment that you got the phone call I mean today it would be maybe an email or a text but the moment you got the phone call to say it's over we've won this battle we're in charge.
1: Yeah, Um yeah. John, John, give a belly. Went round all the Magpie Group, and he said, "Look, the final bricks in the wall. We've got it. It's done. It's ours." And there was a, my first thought was brilliant, and my second thought was, "Right, John, let's have a meeting. What the heck do we do now? Because now is the time. The pressure's on us. We were the outsiders fighting from the outside all the way along." And then suddenly the board had capitulated because the shares had all been uh, sold. They no longer held the greatest number of shares. So they couldn't, Uh, you you literally, once John got above 51% or got to 51%, the club was his. Uh, And and so the board were going to resign and do the honourable thing and... and then all of a sudden he had a new board and it was right where do we go from there who do we put po- and there was so much had to be done so quickly in terms of um uh, supporting kevin keegan getting the right things in john had tub thumped throughout the area He'd gone to social clubs in ashington and talked to fans i would go up and work the mic and he would go up on stage and we would talk to Newcastle native fans and social clubs in ashington which is where john came from in various places The elation was enormous, but at the same time, not trepidation, but the realisation that it's OK winning a fight, but you've then got to justify having fought for two years and the Newcastle crowd are going to expect things to happen. Uh, And it had to happen quickly because we were on the verge. When Keegan came in, we were on the verge of going into the old third division. So things had to happen quickly to stabilise the club, and it happened so quickly because of Keegan's charisma and John's money and the ability and the people around him, Douglas Hall, Freddie Shepard and Freddie Fletcher, who would push John, yes, go on, let's do that, let's buy him, let's go there, let's do this. Um, And it was the most wonderful, wonderful time in my life of being involved with Newcastle United. It didn't last long enough. That was the sadness for me.
0: That's sadness for everybody. Um, I'm on to, to Mike Ashley. We're not going to spend too long on Mike Ashley because no, I because
1: think we know all the story. We,
0: we've said it many a times, uh, not just in Gibbo's Corner, but you know, in the po- weekly podcasts. Uh, but Mike Ashley comes in, Sir John Hall thinks he's sort someone who's going to take the club forward, and yeah, we are 11 years down the line, and more than anything. It's just a frustration because you look on paper and it, in Sir John Hall's defence, you look at this man, multi-billionaire, on oh. paper, you, you look at him and you think, he should be the man that turns the castle into a top-four side. Well, jo- John
1: Hall, and this is not in defence of John Hall, this is just because it's true. John Hall, who had seen clubs sold to foreign investors like the guy that was the prime minister of thailand that took over at man city um, he'd seen the various owners going into um leeds and blackpool and portsmouth a lot of other very dodgy american owners came in and and, and from the middle east and he honestly thought as much as you ever could that uh mike ashley um an English owner, they they had a lot of money and 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 apparent a love of football. He was passing it on into the hands. It proved to be the one decision John got wrong in the, in his lifetime. Um, although by that time John was ready to be out. He was a much older man and, and and you know wasn't going to be running the club anymore. And it was a time to move on and. But he did think that Mike Ashley was the guy now we didn't know all of us the fans and us uh, here that Mike Ashley wasn't going to be the guy and when he first arrived what happened to the to the the honeymoon period when he first arrived and he used to sit in a director's box in a black and white striped shirt with Colochini's uh, name on the back and go into the town after games uh, for karaoke and etc etc and at that stage trying to bond with fans etc at that stage he had Chris Mort who was his front man up here and that was one of the tragedies that chris Moore didn't remain as his front man because he agreed to take the job for one year to help ashley um because he had been the solicitor guy handling it for ashley he said i'll come up and run it at headquarters for the first year and then i'm going back to my job in that year, he was magnificent. Wherever I went to dinners, to World's End Boys Club, to any social do, he was top table. He'd make a speech. He would, he would pump flesh on behalf. He was very upfront, and he was a great for Newcastle. Now. Chris Chris Moore. Chris Moore yeah. was running it for Ashley. He was a great front man, uh, a PR man. Went out every night that God sent if there was a do on a sports do to represent Newcastle, pump hands, etc. etc. When he disappeared, we got uh Lambias and we got Lee Johnny, etc. And, and the whole thing just changed. And um, Ashley changed, and Ashley has fallen out of love with football if he was ever in love with Newcastle United in particular. And um, uh hope has just gone out of the window we don't need to go into everything we know everything from trying to change the name of st james's park to selling the club and then not selling it to saying nothing and then making grand statements of which absolutely nothing happens and here we are sitting eleven years later saying the club's up for sale but is it really he's about to sell very quickly oh yes is that true etc etc are we going to have any money in January uh, are we going to try to win any cups or are we just going to have the third relegation on Ashley's pitch it is old it is boring it is
0: awful and the wish for next year is that it ends yes many fans will be keeping their fingers crossed just to wrap up then out of the the, the guys we've spoken about the guys you've you know had the pl- pleasure in some circumstances of covering indeed, indeed. give me the man give me the memory of one of them the, the most favorite memory that you know you maybe tell everyone at your talkings. Uh, you know about one mm. of the guys you've mentioned there
1: i the two outstanding guys without a shadow of doubt the Stan Seymour senior and john hall um Stan Seymour Sr. because he was the ultimate and the most unique man of all, the player that become the manager and become the chairman and won things for Newcastle United at all three levels. And he he was completely down to earth, put his arm round you, say, hey, away, bonnie lad, let's go into the bar and have a pint. And that was Stan, but he was the shrewdest football man that I've ever come across. John Hall stands out for me because he produced, in a short space of time, a a club that went from the old third division to runners-up in the Premier League and produced the entertainers. And John Hall loved that, relished that, we relished it. Unfortunately, we couldn't sustain it. And I... I think Stan Seymour saw the whole thing go from A to Z, the complete thing. John Hall gave us a firecracker up in the sky that suddenly burnt out and we're left with, if only. But we do appreciate when that rocket took off and it exploded in the sky with all the lights. That was a wonderful time. Please, God, may the situation at Newcastle change permanently very very soon and we get back to either Stan Seymour Senior or John Hall and glory hallelujah for all of us
0: yes fingers crossed and all being well in the new year we'll be sitting down on the everything is black and white podcast with Sir John Hall and of course Gibble for a very special episode of Gibble's Corner but for now that is it Um I hope you guys have all had a Merry Christmas and wish you a happy new year I'm sure you Absolutely too, Gibble.
1: To everyone, to every Geordie, every Newcastle United fan, God bless you. Keep the faith. We'll do it all again next year.
0: Thank you very much. This is Acast Recommends. Every week, we pick one of our favourite shows. And this is one we think you're going to love. Hello, I'm Jeff Lloyd, and I recently had a baby with Ed Miliband. A baby podcast, that is.